Ephesians chapter 2, let's begin at verse 1 and let's read together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for your word. And now I ask once again that you will touch me so that I will be enabled to proclaim the truth of your word. Help me to proclaim it with clarity, with power and anointing. But more important than anything I say, Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for sons and daughters that have wandered from the faith. Draw them back to yourself, Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. And Father, I lift up the concerns that are on the hearts of the people of this congregation, both in-house and online. And I pray, O Lord, that you will give attention to the cry of our heart, to the burdens we carry, to the struggles we have. I pray, O Lord, that you will extend the hand of your help to us, the grace of your help, right at the point of our need. Touch us today, O Lord. Don't let us leave here the same way we came. But let there be a transforming work of your spirit. I pray all of these things today in the only name that matters. The mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace... Author Philip Yancey tells a story about an event that occurred during a British conference on comparative religions. At one of the sessions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Someone proposed incarnation, but then they realized other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Well, what about resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked. 
and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Grace is a word that is frequently heard in the church, but my observation is that too often believers fail to live in the experiential power of this magnificent truth. Grace is God loving you when you are unlovable, wanting you when you are undesirable, accepting you when you are unworthy, paying the price for your redemption when you are bankrupt. Grace is the power by which God accomplishes his wondrous works. See, justice is when you receive the consequence you deserve for your actions. Mercy is when you deserve punishment, but the punishment gets canceled. Grace is when you rightly deserve something bad, but instead, you don't just get the bad canceled, but you receive the blessing and the help and the good that you don't deserve. Let me illustrate it this way. When you come into the room and find your five-year-old has scribbled on the wall with permanent wall marker, justice meets out punishment. Come on, moms and dads. Mercy doesn't punish, but simply cleans up the mess. Grace takes the child to get ice cream. Perhaps one of the best places to illustrate the concept of grace, the grace of God, is found in the verses that form the text for the message today. It is here that we find articulated a foundational truth of the Christian faith, sola gratia, grace alone. The letter to the church at Ephesus was written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 to 61 A.D., it's been called the crown jewel of Paul's theology. In chapter 2 of this letter, the apostle begins by describing the human condition. First of all, he says, if you are outside of Christ, you are dead. That's verse 1. And you were dead in your trespass and sins. The Bible makes it unmistakably clear that if you are outside of Christ, you are not merely sick, you are not gravely ill, you aren't on life support. Everyone is born into this world as a dead man or woman walking. This is your spiritual condition. See, you didn't enter this world just needing a little improvement. You came into this world as a decaying, rotting spiritual corpse. You are spiritually unable to respond to God, 
to obey God or to seek after God. You have no righteousness whatsoever. You have no spiritual eyes or ears. You have no desire to submit your will to God. You aren't mostly dead like Wesley in The Princess Bride. You are thoroughly, utterly, completely, reprehensibly dead. The human condition is that you are dead. Paul goes on then to say that you are defiant. You are actively rebellious against God. That's what it's talking about in verse 3 when he writes, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. See, this rebellion against God is more than an attitude. It's the very disposition of your soul. It's a denial of any authority but that of your own desires. It's a spiritual shaking your fist in the face of God, demanding your own way. It's a refusal to accept any personal responsibility. It's an insistence on living how you want to live, coloring outside the lines, following no rules but your own. Now, if that wasn't good enough, I've got some more good news for you. You are dead, you are defiant, but then he says your condition outside of Christ is doomed. At the end of verse 3, he writes, we're by nature children of wrath. You are spiritually dead and incapable of saving yourself. More than that, you don't want saving, particularly by God. You are doomed. Judgment is coming, and because of your sin and rebellion, you deserve the full brunt of the wrath of God. There is nothing you can do to escape. Now, now, now I understand this isn't a popular idea. Nobody really wants to think about this. But regardless of whether you were born in an obscure rainforest half a world away, or in a housing project in the inner city, or in an upscale, middle-class family, you are born with a nature that is deserving of the wrath of God. There's nothing you can do to mitigate His punishment. There are no good deeds you can perform that can satisfy His demands. On your best day, your personal righteousness has the value of a poorly made, dirty, threadbare, tattered, worn-out garment that is so worthless that goodwill would throw it on the trash. Your nature is that you are a child of wrath. Your condition is that you are dead. Your destiny is destruction. Now that would be cause for utter despair were it not for the next two words at the beginning of verse 4. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You are dead, but God. You are defiant, but God. You are doomed, but God. Those two words make all the difference. Because in those two words is revealed the holy compassion. When the Bible talks about God's wrath, too many people have the the impression that God is angry at humanity. But Jesus loves them and gains God's favor for them by dying on the cross. Listen, listen. The cross doesn't gain back God's favor. 
God's favor was the basis of the death of Jesus. Love is not the opposite of wrath. As difficult as it may be to conceive, the wrath of God is an expression of his love and of his deep attachment to his people. The theologian Lactantius wrote in the third century, he who does not get angry does not care. If God can look at the sin and the injustice in this world and not get angry, he isn't much of a God. The God of the Bible isn't some immovable, unfeeling force. He is a God who cares. He cares deeply and passionately. The story of the Bible is the story of God himself taking action to keep his anger from destroying humanity. The Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You can't pay the penalty for your sin. So God provides the payment for you by the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus. In the midst of death, defiance, and doom, God did something completely extravagant. He saved you because of his great love for you. I want to tell you, the death of Jesus on the cross is not an award for your hard work. The cross isn't a generous bonus or a booster shot to get you over the top. You are not saved because you earned your way to be saved. You aren't saved because you bought your ticket to heaven. The death and resurrection of Jesus are free gifts. Through the completed work of Jesus on the cross, you are taken from hell to heaven, from bondage to freedom. From darkness to light, from despair to hope, from God's wrath to God's glory, from death to life. In verse 5, Paul writes, while you were dead, he made you alive. Listen, this isn't a behavior modification plan. This isn't trying to become a better person. This is life transformation. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make bad people good. He died on the cross to make dead people alive. Not only has he made you alive, but in verse 6, it says he raised you up with Christ. The Bible speaks about your resurrection from the dead in the past tense. Not he will raise you up, he raised you up. See, the Bible is so confident you will be raised, it speaks about it as if it has already happened. Watch this. Even though you spit in the face of God and commit cosmic treason, God not only receives you, but he also gives you the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. That means you now have resurrection power over everything that tries to hold you in bondage. Over guilt, over shame, over condemnation. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. When he was raised from the grave, you were raised.
He made you alive. He raised you. Then again in verse 6, he says, he seated you in heavenly places in Christ. Now, this isn't, when it says seated you in heavenly places, this isn't talking about heaven. It's talking about the realm of spiritual realities. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place above all powers and spiritual forces. And he says, you are seated with him. What does that mean? You are joined with him. That means you have power over those forces as well. Brian Chappell wrote, you are too dead to be the source of your salvation. You are too weak to be the maintenance of your salvation. You are too finite to be the eternal stewards of your salvation. See, so many people are geared to think, here's what I must do for God. The good news of the gospel is, here is what God has done for you. When you were estranged, he brought you near. When you were in bondage, he delivered you. When you were in debt, he ransomed you. Paul writes about the human condition. He writes about the holy compassion. Then he talks about how this becomes an experiential reality. This is how the holy compassion is applied to your life. It's what I call the humble confidence. He spells it out in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, it's interesting to me. There are too many people thinking they are saved by math. You know, they subtract certain things from their lives. You know, maybe you're a cheat and you stop cheating. Well, listen, that isn't going to save you. It just means you'll go to hell honest. If you stop drinking, that won't save you. Just means you'll go to hell sober. If subtraction isn't going to get the job done, maybe you can get saved by addition. You know, you'll start going to church more often. You'll start read, you'll read your Bible, you'll pray, you'll sing in the choir, you'll you'll give tithes and offerings, you'll work in the children's ministry, you'll serve on the hospitality team. But what about all those bad things you've already done? How do you erase the bad things you've already done? The Bible says you cannot save yourself by subtraction or by addition. Salvation by math isn't going to work. Those of us that were poorly, did poorly in math in school, we already knew that. (laughs) The humble condition is simply to rest in the only path to salvation that God has given. Grace. Grace. In the New Testament, there are some 155 references to grace. 100 of these come from the pen of the Apostle Paul. That word grace opens, closes, and dominates every letter he wrote. Grace is something that is woven into the very fabric of God's character. You've no doubt heard a definition of grace that says it is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Someone even made an acrostic out of it and said it was God's riches at Christ's expense. This is true, but I want to tell you, grace is so much more than that. Grace is God doing for you what you are incapable of doing for yourself. 
Grace is not merely a gift. It's a free gift given to those who deserve the exact opposite. It's, getting, it's the kid getting the ice cream instead of the whipping. Now, there are two extremes that constantly battle against grace. The first is legalism. This is the idea that grace is too easy. There must be something you have to do to secure your salvation. This is where you'll hear things like, yes, it's by grace, but then you have to be baptized to be saved. Yes, it's by grace, but you have to be a member of the church. Yes, it's by grace, but you have to observe certain restrictions and keep certain requirements. The Apostle Paul wrote an entire letter, the letter to the Galatians, to refute this idea of legalism. He says in chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3 of that book, you foolish Galatians, I just want to back up and say that one again, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly crucified, portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In that same book, he says again in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. He says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored, labored over you in vain. The simple truth is that your salvation is the work of Jesus plus nothing. It's all of grace. The first extreme is legalism. The second extreme is on the opposite side. It's called license, also known as antinomianism. This is the idea that since grace is abundant, grace covers all your sin, then it doesn't matter what you do. You can live any way you want and grace will cover it. Well, this is what Paul is addressing when he writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. I like the way the old King James says it. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's what he's talking about in verses 11 through 13 of that same chapter of Romans. He said, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Between those two extremes of legalism and license stands the marvelous work of grace. Before we get out of here today, I want to show you four things about this incredible, amazing work of grace. First of all, I want to tell you that grace reaches. See, when you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you think that's normal. You haven't known anything else. You think that's the way it's supposed to be. But that's when grace breaks in and reveals a better way. See, when you aren't looking for anything else, grace opens a door to a new possibility. Yeah. 
When you are merely going along ignoring God, grace interrupts your journey and confronts you with your need for a Savior. When you try to run from the loving embrace of your Heavenly Father, grace chases you down and won't let you go. The grace of God is working with you and for you even before you are in a relationship with Him. I wish somebody would grab hold of that. Even before you know anything about God, grace is working with you and for you. It's what is known as prevenient grace. Prevenient means going before. It's from the old English use of the word prevent. Now, in modern usage, the word prevent means to stop. If, if you and I were in a race and I prevent you to the finish line, in today's understanding, we mean I tripped you up and I cleated you on the way by and I kept you from getting to the finish line, right? I prevented you. But in the old English use of the word, if you prevent me to the finish line, it simply means you got there first. Prevenient grace isn't grace that stops anything. Rather, it is grace that is operative before you even know it's operating. It is grace that gets there ahead of you and is waiting on you when you arrive. In Genesis, the Bible says that the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. But in the Hebrew language, that word moved isn't just a word uh, to, to describe going from one place to another. There's an emotional quality to that word in the Hebrew language. It's more properly understood that the Spirit of God um, brooded restlessly over the chaos. Unhappy with the fact that it, what was going on at that moment did not reflect the glory of a creative and generous God. John Wesley in his writings went so far as to say that there are places in Scripture where you can read the Holy Spirit and grace interchangeably. So if the Holy Spirit was brooding over the face of the waters, read it the other way. Grace moved over the darkness of the abyss, reporting back inside the enclosed society of the Godhead. Father, this is not like you. This is dark, morbid, full of confusion and chaos. It doesn't bear the stamp of your creative character. There's no life. There's no glory here. That's prevenient grace. Grace that broods over a life. Grace is brooding over the places that are dark and don't reflect the character and the glory of God. Grace is busily at work bringing order out of chaos. Hear me today. Right now. Right now. While I'm preaching, God is gracing this city. God is gracing this church church. God is gracing your family. God is gracing your life. There is not any place so dark, dirty, and dismal that God isn't present. There isn't anyone who is so far away from God that grace isn't touching. The one thing that is keeping you from total destruction right now, even though you are away from God, is grace. The one thing that is holding back the judgment that your sin deserves is grace. Before you know it, you need it, grace is there. Before you want it, grace is there. Grace is what opens your spiritual eyes to recognize your need for a Savior. Grace is what gives you the space to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus. Grace is what woos you and calls you and convicts you and holds you and keeps you and protects you and sustains you and orders the circumstances of your life and relentlessly pursues you and refuses to give up on you. Right now, 
If you are away from God, grace is reaching to you. There is not a hell hole in this city where grace is not actively reaching to lost humanity. There is not a person away from God, no matter how hardened or how resistant to the invitation of the Spirit, that grace is not chipping away at that resolve. There is not a person deceived by the lies of Satan that grace is not proclaiming truth. There is not a person stuck and slipping deeper into the bondage of sin that grace is not extending a hand of help. Grace is reaching right now not only do I want to tell you that grace is reaching but then I also want to tell you grace redeems the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself when you were spiritually lost when you were spiritually dead in trespasses and sin When you were a stranger and an alien from the household of faith, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, shed his life's blood on Calvary's cross. He died in your place. He took your guilt. He took your punishment. When the force of the judgment of sin would have crushed you, grace pushed it back so you could have life. When sin brought bondage, grace pushed it back and gave freedom. When sin brought condemnation, grace pushed it back and gave justification. When sin brought guilt, grace pushed it back and gave pardon. Grace is what gives you the space to to exercise faith in Jesus in the first place. See, too often we're just just running pell-mell toward destruction. But grace will, will bring us up short. Grace will pull back on the reins long enough to give us space. So that we can see the error of our ways and recognize our need for Jesus. Then, at the moment you surrender your life to Jesus, at that moment, grace resists the otherwise predictable outcome of the presence and force of sin. Grace pushes back the judgment of sin and sets you free from the law of sin and death. (coughs) You know that word redeem is a wonderful word. It means to bring out the full value of something. Now think about that. Sin has diminished you. Sin has discounted you. Sin has devalued you. Sin has called you unworthy, undesirable, unlovable, unacceptable. But the moment you turn to Jesus, grace steps up and redeems. Grace takes you off the discounted back lot and places you back on the showroom floor. Grace takes you off the road to hell and puts you on the highway to heaven. Everybody else declares you to be helpless and hopeless and worthless, but grace looks past what you are and sees what nobody else can see. Grace sees your potential, your future, your purpose, your divine destiny. Somebody ought to give praise today for grace. Grace reaches, grace redeems. Then I want you to see that grace restores. Sin has distorted the divine image in you. Sin has marred and scarred. 
Some of you have decided that because your sin is so great, God couldn't possibly love you or accept you or ever use you again. In response, grace says, you can't sink so low that God can't reach you. Grace says you can't sin so much that God can't redeem you. Grace says you can't be so damaged that God can't restore you. Hear verse 5 again, would you? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Grace will push back the condemnation of the evil one. Grace will push back the guilt. Grace will push back the insecurity. Grace will push back the fear. Grace will push back the indignation of the religious crowd. And grace will restore. It will restore your position. It will restore your authority. It will restore your promise. It will restore your hope. It will restore your joy. It will restore your peace. It will restore your security. It will restore your destiny. Grace reaches. Grace redeems. Grace restores. Finally, I want you to see that grace reigns. By all rights, your end should be death and destruction. But when you surrender your life to Jesus, grace writes a different ending. Grace takes a life that is broken and battered and thrown on the junk pile and mends it and cleans it up and puts it on display as a trophy of Calvary's love. Do you understand that your life is meant to be a trophy in God's showcase? That's what he says in verse 7 of our text. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, when the apostle Paul writes, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, watch this, as sin reigned in death, even so, to the same extent now, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul writes, where sin increased, or again, the old King James says, where sin abounded. Grace abounded all the more. That literally means where sin abounded, grace superabounded. See, where sin abounds, death reigns. But then the Lord comes along and says, oh no, I'm going to change that. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds and pushes back the predictable outcome and writes an entirely new ending. Instead of death having the final word, grace reigns. In the midst of temptation, grace reigns. In the midst of tribulation, grace reigns. In the midst of trials, grace reigns. In the midst of trouble, grace reigns. In the midst of tension, grace reigns. In the midst of testing, grace reigns. When grief hangs like a dark, oppressive cloud, grace reigns. When you've reached the end of your rope, 
grace reigns. When disaster strikes and dreams are crushed, grace reigns. At every place where the power of sin threatens to completely devastate, grace rises up and says, oh no, you're not going to be destroyed because of grace. You're not going to be defeated because of grace. When you can't see it, grace reigns. When you can't feel it, Grace reigns. When you can't hear it, grace reigns. Grace reigns over disease. Grace reigns over disappointment. Grace reigns over discouragement. Grace reigns over dysfunction. In plenty and in want, grace reigns. In good times and in bad, grace reigns. On the mountaintop and in the valley, grace reigns. When life is easy and when life is hard, grace reigns. In the calm and in the storm, grace reigns. When all the forces of hell come against you, that's not the time to pay because grace reigns from here throughout the endless ages of eternity. Grace reigns. As I bring the message to a close, I want to especially speak to that person who feels like you're so far away from God that you can't come to him. Maybe you once walked with him, but you've wandered away and you, and you feel like you can't return. Well, I'm here to tell you upon the authority of the word of God that his grace is reaching to you right now. He has grace enough for you. He will welcome you with open arms because of his grace. And when you come to him, instead of a rebuke or condemnation, he'll receive you. He'll embrace you. He'll restore you. It's the story of the prodigal. You wander in a far country for a long time. You can squander everything. But grace is reaching to you. It's grace that will help you come to your senses. It's grace that will put the thought... I just wonder if maybe I could just be a servant in the Father's house. It is grace that will help get you started back down the road. And I want to tell you, the Father is looking for you. He's shielding his eyes from the glare of the sun, looking down the road. And at the first sign of a little puff of dust that indicates your feet are making their way back. He will lay aside every vestige of dignity and run as fast as he can to meet you. And he won't punish you. He won't just clean up the mess. <laughs> he give you ice cream. <laughs> He'll embrace you. He'll welcome you. Well, won't you hear the voice of grace calling you today? He's calling Isaiah 42 and 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He's calling Isaiah 43 and 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake 
and I will not remember your sins. He's calling Isaiah 55 and 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I'm here to tell you no matter how great your sin, his grace is greater. Stand with me please. I don't know who I've been preaching this message to. I don't know if it's somebody in this, in this building. I don't know, maybe it's somebody online. Maybe it's somebody who's going to be watching this service, not even today, but some, sometime later. I just want to say to you, won't you respond to the invitation of His grace? Let's bow our heads together. I just want to pray a prayer, and I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. I'm just going to ask if you to agree with this prayer in your heart, if this is where you are. Oh, Lord, I've been away from you. And I thought there was no hope for me because I just didn't see any way possible. I don't have to have anybody tell me how bad I am, Lord, I know the sins I've committed. But today I heard a message of hope. I heard that your grace is greater than all of my sin. And all I had to do was just receive your gift of grace. So today, right now in the quietness of my own heart, I receive it. I thank you. I believe it. And I turn to you and ask you to forgive me. Make me part of your forever family. Thank you for your grace that is so amazing. Grace that is greater Thank you. I don't deserve it. But you told me I didn't have to deserve it. You just said I could have it. So by faith, I receive it now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all. Aren't you thankful for that? God's grace, grace that will pardon 
take a moment out of your own heart and just thank God for His grace today that's been extended to your life.